This episode of the American Birding Podcast is sponsored by Caligo Ventures, a top birding ecotourism company, and for 40 years, the North American representative for Trinidad's famed Asa Wright Nature Center. Caligo Ventures invites you to delight in the dazzling species at the center's feeders, including 10 species of hummingbird, Crestodora pendula, and the brilliant yellow oriole. You can hike the center grounds, you can watch channel build toucans and bearded bellbirds across birding trees. This fall, there are special workshops. You can enjoy a photo workshop or a Hummingbird Workshop with Sherry Williamson. Trinidad is just about the best introduction to neotropical birding you can get, and your brilliant birding vacation awaits. Visit Caligo.com or call 800-426-7781. Mention the American Birding Podcast for a special offer. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I hope you guys are having a good ratty bird season. I, I don't know what it's like where you are, and depending on your latitude, I guess spring migration may not even be entirely over, but down here where I am, we are well into the molt season, which means ugly birds, bald cardinals, missing flight feathers, all that stuff. It's one of the joys of summer that is humid and hot and sticky as birding this time of year can be across much of the ABA area, the southern part at least. The birds look every bit as haggard as we do. It's also Pride Month, so you know, happy Pride to all our LGBTQ plus listeners, friends, and colleagues with a extra shout out to all you non-binary birds out there. I'm looking at you rough with your four genders. I'm not kidding. The the rough, the widespread Eurasian shorebird that shows up in the ABA area a few times in a few places every year. It does, in fact, have four genders. There is the territorial male with the huge, elaborate ruff of feathers, hence the name, uh, around the head and neck. Very, very fancy looking bird. They breed on these leks like prairie chickens, and, and the territorial males are, are in the middle, kind of holding court, fighting amongst each other for the best position, theoretically the best opportunities to mate with females. You know, next to them are what are called satellite males who sort of cooperate with the territorial males. And then after that, there are what are called fader males, which are actually female mimics. They, they completely lack that fancy ornamental plumage. They hang around the edges of the lek, sort of jump on opportunities to mate with the females when they occur. Actually, some females even prefer to mate with the fader males. And this is all genetic, as you might expect. There's a chunk of the genome that controls what a male bird is going to be. So half the chicks of satellites are satellites, half the chicks of the female mimics are female mimics. But if you sort of lack this certain form of the chromosome, you end up as a territorial male. That's before we even get into the female role in the species, which some females seem to prefer the faders, as I said earlier. Some prefer the ornamental males. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Birds are, are way more complicated than we sometimes give them credit for. At last, I want to thank everyone who filled out the American Birding Podcast listener survey that I mentioned at the end of the last episode. I'll put it in the show notes again this week and let it run for another cycle. I really, really appreciate everyone doing that. There were a lot of great thoughts. My, my favorite question was the one uh, where I asked, you know, what would you like to hear us cover what interests, what what topics, what people, uh, who would you like to hear us interview on this podcast? There were a ton of great ideas. Some of the ideas and the people that you mentioned, I'm, I'm happy to say that I have 
thought about as well, and in some cases even lined up. So, you know, we're all mostly on the same page here, which strikes me as a good thing. And one of those things that people really like and want to see more of is the science stuff, the taxonomy stuff. So, so get ready, because I'm very happy to report that Dr. Nick Block is back to talk American Ornithological Society taxonomy proposals. And it's not just the taxo stuff, there's some name stuff in there too. There's no commentary this time, we're, we're going to let this one run, we're going deep, so be ready. Uh, Nick joins me right after this week's Red Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first part of June 2019. We're finally getting some reports from Western Alaska, including the highly anticipated trip to Far Atu, which produced some cool stuff like Stellar Sea Eagle, Siberian Ruby Throat, and Great Knot, Eyebrowed Thrush, essentially the East Asian answer to our American Robin with a flashier face, uh, was seen on Attic and St. Paul. Common Greenshank was on Attic and Gamble. Hawfinch was on Attic and Red Flank Bluetail on Gamble. So lots of interesting birds with more likely to come from Western Alaska, the Aleutians and Bering Sea area. We have a handful of first records to report, including a white-tailed kite in Prowers County, Colorado. That state was long overdue for a confirmed record of this species, and every surrounding state, including Wyoming, had recorded it in the past. In fact, Nevada even had one last week as well, though that wasn't a first. A Montana first tricolored heron in Valley County is the obvious highlight for a period that has included a lot of great eastern vagrants in that state, including the state's sixth yellow-throated vireo, painted bunting, and summer tanager. And in Vermont, a Swainson's warbler was heard in Essex County, a first for that state. Unfortunately, that bird has not been seen, as far as I know, but that's not terribly unusual for that species. I only covered a few of the notable records for the last couple weeks. For all the rest, check out the ABA blog every Friday and join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash ABA Rare. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. It is taxonomy time again, and that means I get to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Nick Block, professor of biology at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts, and secretary of the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee, and the very person I like to talk to when it comes to splits, lumps, name changes, and all the various American Ornithological Society Classification Committee ephemera. Um, this is always one of our more popular episodes every year, so uh, thanks for coming back again, Nick. Oh, I'm always happy to be here. Cool. You know, in sort of preparing for this discussion, I went back and looked over the relevant proposals. Uh, for those who may be listening for the first time, uh, the AOS, American Ornithological Society, has this committee that essentially makes these split, lump, name change decisions that are all incorporated into our bird lists and field guides. And their decisions are eagerly awaited every summer. Uh, so I look back at the stuff I wrote as far back as like six months ago when the first packet came out. And there are Really too many controversial proposals this time out, at least not from a taxonomic perspective. There's some name changes that we'll get into, but sort of what was your sense for the the slate of proposals this year? I mean, a little bit similar to yours. There's, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. In the last past couple of years when we've talked, there have always been uh, um, some decisions that uh, had the possibility of confusing people. <laughs> and big surprises um and certainly some of that played out um some of my uh you know off the cuff predictions absolutely not played out and <laughs> oh, uh, oh, well. you know, there's a yeah there's there's kind of a whole 
issue at the moment with the kind of committee decisions that I think are confusing people in general. Like, I don't, not to not to like go out on any limbs here, but like, there's there's definitely been some confusion about uh, consistency in decision making. Yeah, uh, but yeah. I know that's something we've talked about. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I know, uh, I do know there's there's um, at least one paper in the works um, of someone trying to kind of lay all that out and, and mm-hmm. try and figure out mm. where, trying to lay out inconsistencies and try and uh, highlight areas where subjective decision-making didn't seem to be logical compared to another decision that had Ooh. very similar evidence and things like very that. Very exciting. But that's kind of getting <laughs> off onto a tangent that is, yeah. is you know, not, not super relevant at the moment. The, uh, uh, but this year, it doesn't seem like there, there are decisions like that, at least not um, in any that I was looking at closely that affect kind of ABA area birds. Yeah. There are a handful of splits. You know, the AOS area includes not just what we think of as the ABA area, but also, also um, you know, Middle America, Mexico, all the way south to Panama. So there's a lot of stuff that it takes that considers birds that live in that area and don't really affect ABA area birders that much. Um, there are two splits, I think, that seem, I don't know, to my relatively novice eyes to be, you know, pretty inoffensive and... Um, one of those is Northern Fulmar, splitting Northern Fulmar into Atlantic Fulmar and Pacific Fulmar, yes. which would add a species to the ABA checklist. What's your thought on this one? So if I um, were on the committee, I would probably accept this split. It is tough to say what they're going to do in this one, I would say, um, hmm. because the the best evidence um you know from a genetic standpoint is coming from mitochondrial dna which shows that atlantic and pacific are very you know their own unique groups no mixing at all Um, but we've talked in the past about how making decisions based on mitochondrial dna alone is is not a good idea Um, uh, but they have some nuclear dna evidence as well Um, it's not as clear um, but um, you know they state very well that that's kind of expected though for these young species where there has not been enough time for um, the nuclear DNA which takes longer for kind of the the changes to build up the mitochondrial DNA and these things are these are young um, the, they're talking about a split that's maybe 200,000 years ago which wow. from from a species perspective is is very young um, hmm. and so I think that that may be some of the the challenge and and the committee's um, you know, that they're going to face in terms of accepting this or rejecting is that these are very young. Um, the nuclear evidence is not super clear, but as they say in the proposal, um, the nuclear evidence is exactly what you would expect if they're in the process of, you know, that they are separate and that the DNA, you know, the way the DNA changes is, is working out the way you would expect it to uh, if they were separate. So you're, you're looking down the road and you're saying, it's like a road sign that says there's a split in a mile. Yes. You know, they're going to diverge down the road. You know, you're, it's pretty clear that it's going to happen. The question is, do you do you accept it now? Yeah, that's actually a great way to look at it. And yeah, so the mitochondrial DNA will split sooner and then and then become kind of their unique group sooner. And nuclear DNA, it's like if you were looking down that road, <clears throat> you would see the split coming. It's, you, you would just see it, you know it's coming later. Like the mitochondrial DNA is almost like a signpost that says split ahead for nuclear yeah. DNA. And in this case, all the evidence, the, the evidence from the nuclear DNA seems to support that there is that split coming. So there's, there's nothing that seems to suggest that the mitochondrial DNA is giving conflicting evidence here that, that wouldn't support a, a split when you look at the big picture. I'm going to throw another a little bit of a wrench into it. Um, will climate change affect 
these birds. So obviously they breed on different islands. So let's say if the Arctic ice continues to melt and there is more opportunities for back and forth between these two populations, could they come back together? Could they remerge? That is a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, you're looking into a crystal ball. It's hard to hard to tell. I've just something that occurred to me is maybe you know something to watch out for, especially since we're seeing a lot of Pacific seabirds increasingly in the Atlantic Basin. I'm thinking, for instance, the uh, short-tailed shearwaters that we're seeing off Massachusetts last year. Uh, <laughs> the the uh, short-tailed shearwaters that uh, I'm off of on the Massachusetts committee. I can't, oh, oh, there's more there. Oh, you can't. Okay. I mean, uh, I don't know. <laughs> short-tailed shearwaters. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, I, you know, I, I voted yes. You know, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I don't, <laughs> we'll I don't see, remember yeah. exactly where, where we're going with that, but, uh, but yes, I. So that's absolutely something that's that's possible. So when you've had species like this that have been split by some kind of geographical barrier, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's part of the reason they originally split is that they have this barrier, and in this case. I think global, you know, global warming, climate change absolutely could contribute to this barrier disappearing. Uh, but then that's kind of it's one of these things that it, it is a crystal ball. We don't know um, that this is part of the speciation process is this idea of what's called secondary contact, where things come back into range with each other. And what happens then is often what helps us determine if two things are good species from the biological species concept standpoint, because we care about whether or not they can breed together. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, this is where tough decisions in the committee come in is what do you do with these things that are not found in the same place? They're allopatric Mm -hmm. and they're kind of different, you know, or is it a different enough to call different species? This is where it's very subjective and tough to apply the biological species concept. And as we've seen with this committee's decisions in the past, it has not been easy for them to make kind of consistent decisions on these allopatric texts that look at the Willett decision, for example. But yes, I what you just said though about the the global warming causing them to potentially come into contact, I think is is absolutely possible. Because hmm. right now their range is not, you know, super far apart up there. And if those islands start to become more hospitable to what they need for breeding, which I this is why I don't remember details about what their breeding kind of requirements are. But if you just look at a map, you could easily see that, you know, that that could that area across the top of, you know, the, the Yukon and Northwest Territories, um, none of it, you know, could all just start closing in. Um, yeah. They could come into contact. So yeah. so they could they could split them now and, you know, 200 years or however long, you know, who right, knows, right. whatever it could come. And then suddenly they just start breeding together. No problem. But um, who knows, you know, or like cackling in Canada geese, which, you know, do seem to stay separate up there and uh, presumably started their split in a similar scenario when they used to be separate on West and East type. So, you know, so who knows? But it's absolutely possible. Definitely possible. They could come back. You know, when I first started thinking about Northern Fulmar, I was like, ah, it's pretty, pretty cut and dried. Man, there's a lot going on there. Boy. Yes. (laughs) The Arctic is a, yeah, probably. It's a black box. Fast, <laughs> yeah. Fast yeah. place, yeah. So how about the other split that is likely to affect um, ABA area birders? The the white-winged scoter split. Um, oh, yeah. It's a kind of a whole Arctic species. Uh, the European one is considered a separate species by British authorities, by European authorities, and it's yes. called velvet scoter. And then there's another one. There's an East Asian one called Steiniger's scoter. 
and um, which has occurred in North America before, I think, in, in Alaska. Um, what do you think about this one? Do you think this is a, a likely split? Is it similar to the black scoter, common scoter? That seems to be the most obvious analog to me. I mean, it, it, that is, is a good analog in that you have this old world and new world versions. Yeah, there's a lot of those kind of splits. Yeah, yeah that, that are different and they're, they're diagnosably different. There's no yeah. overlap and no one has seen, or at least I, as far as I know, there have been no documented like intermediate individuals that would suggest that they hybridized somewhere. I mean, not surprising considering their ranges really don't overlap. I don't know if they know for sure whether or not there's a little bit of contact in the Asian ones, um, mm. but uh, the proposal suggests that that they are not in contact at all. So we have three different, you know, subspecies considered considered subspecies now by the AOS that are all geographically isolated, mm. and all of them, the males are diagnosed like you know with yeah they look different good yeah. look are, are yeah. you know easily identified it's as far as you know it comes with plenty of birds we would consider not easily identifiable these are so what do you what do you do with that you have isolated populations they all look different they look different enough similar to like say common and black scoter that were split like why not split these as well and I tend to fall on that side of things that you have clearly separate populations that look different, that have show no sign of hybridization or intermediate individuals. They're mixed flocks, you know, that have had no uh, intermediate individuals observed um, in some parts of Alaska. So if you're going to be consistent, <laughs> you know, I would split them out as three species yeah. and the the challenge here is that there's no you know the committee likes to have genetic data and as they should and and as far as i know there there are no genetic data um That's interesting to make their case yet i think it's one of those things it's just yet um it, it there may there may be that i'm not aware of um for sure uh maybe something's in the works too who knows um, but the proposal is more based on the idea that the lump of these three things, which used to be considered different species way back mm -hmm. in the late uh, 1800s and early 1900s, that they were lumped for no reason, basically. Um, yeah. And that's oh, kind okay. of the case they're trying to make is that the lump um, uh, had no justification. It was just like a it was just a decree. Like the author just said, oh, these are all the same. <laughs> and and then people just have followed that. Yeah, that's sort of interesting. It's like the opposite of the uh, the Kumlians Iceland Thayerskull situation mm -hmm. that we had last year, <laughs> which would was they decided that the split was, you know, just by decree. There was no reason for it. And so that's that. I, the proposal is more based on on that. It's basically saying that we we should fix this case of a lump that never was supported by evidence. Mm -hmm. And if the evidence for the lump wasn't there, then we should revert to the original treatment. Original. And then you know, if more evidence comes up you know, great, but we shouldn't be continuing to treat them as one when the lump had no evidence to support it. That it seems like the committee has been, if I'm reading the tea leaves, the, the more kind of open to that sort of argument than perhaps, you know, kind of more muddy genetic stuff. Yeah. They're open to going back and saying, look, this decision was wrong. Let's fix this and then go forward from there. Let's dive into the Harlan's Hawk situation. Oh, um, huh. boy, that, that was some proposal. Um, it is interesting that there was no sort of genetic component to it. The idea is that Harlan's hawk should be split up based on plumage 
if I'm reading it correctly, plumage issues, um, which, which makes it, I mean, Harlan's hawk has long been considered this sort of distinct subspecies of red tailed hawk. They are very different, but this is kind of an odd proposal to make that case. Would you agree? Uh, I do. Um, I mean, I will say that I think this is kind of, um, I don't know, I want to call it a pet project, but th- I think this is just something that, that that Bill Clark has been wanting to see for yeah. a very long time. He's just always supported the idea that it should be different, and and he's trying to make his case. In his defense, there are a few people who would probably be able to make that case as well as Bill Clark, considering all the raptors oh, yeah. he's had in his hand over his career. I mean, he is a well-known raptor. Yes biologist he he is he has the credibility of course you know everyone has clark and wheeler wheeler and clark you know that's yeah. <laughs> these these uh you know mainstays on birders bookshelves yeah he definitely has the the background to have quite a bit of knowledge of, of the situation um and what's interesting in the proposal though is that if you read the, the his paper, he had a paper in a journal called Zotaxa, um, kind of trying to make this case too, and and it has you know kind of much more data, a lot more information in the paper. In the proposal, it seems, you know, that he he kind of leaves out some things that don't support his case. At least that's mm. my impression. And so the proposal, if you read just the proposal. I think some of the differences that he cites in the kind of the maybe in a little way black and white way he presents it, which is appropriate for Harlan's hot. I know I almost just (laughs) (laughs) I almost just said that I was like I didn't mean to do that, but um, yeah. So I think that the proposal, to be perfectly honest, is maybe a little a bit of cherry picking a a little bit you know not completely like these differences absolutely exist, but I think the proposal kind of didn't do a great job of talking about the intermediate birds that are out there and the hybridization mm-hmm. that is occurring. And in in reference to that, there's actually a um, essentially a rebuttal to this proposal in, in the yeah. list of proposals, which is very unusual for, for these committee proposals, is that there's a counter proposal saying that this proposal for splitting the Harlan's Hawk was incomplete and we want to give you the full picture. Juicy AOS drama. It, 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 it is a little bit, you know, you, you know, one of these areas where you know, nerdy academics and, and their <laughs> drama, but um, I love it, you know, but uh, so that this is what I mean. Like that in that proposal, they, they cite additional information from other papers and personal observations, but they mm-hmm. also do cite some of the information that is in Clark's paper and saying he you know this he he says that there were these hybrids in these areas like alberta and western canada but he didn't mention those in the proposal so mm-hmm. i do think that in this case if you if you read the essentially the rebuttal proposal the counter proposal that they make a much stronger case um that there is evidence because it, in the proposal uh, clark is only comparing kind of harlan eye to to Calurus, the kind of western red tail mm-hmm. um subspecies but you know the counter proposal kind of argues that there are other subspecies up there in northern canada that kind of come into contact with harlan's hawk that also need to be assessed um mm. if we're going to call harlan's different and um and they make the case that there are harlan's that are hybridizing with red tails all across western canada there's actually mm. a wide geographic range of overlap um and that it's much more common to actually find mixed pairs at a nest mm. than it is to find pure harlan's um so the extent of hybridization is seems to be higher than you would think based on on Clark's original uh, on the proposal. Mm-hmm. So this is why I feel like you know I obviously we don't have crystal balls, but I would be 
I would go out on a limb and say that absolutely the committee is not going to accept this split. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that whole, the whole red-tailed hawk subspecific story is so bizarre. I mean, they're such a variable bird. And I think we're both Eastern birders. And I think yes. that we don't always get to see the, the full story because our red-tailed hawks are pretty much standard type. But uh, in the Western, in Western North America, there are so many different red-tailed hawks. And I'm always amazed when I'm birding, you know, west of the Great Plains, how different they look and how many, yeah. how much, how variable they are. It's it's wild. Yeah. And that makes it tough to make decisions yeah, about even where totally. some species boundaries are, you know, this yeah. variation. But um, you know, I think, and, and, you know, cause I've seen plenty of individuals that seem to be intermediate criters. I'm like, wait, is that a criter? Mm-hmm. Is this really pale, but maybe it's just a pale Eastern, yeah. you know? Um, and it's the same, same idea, I think in this area of Western Canada is that, um, these intermediate birds are more common than we might think. Um, mm-hmm. uh, at least on the, you know, on the breed, the, the breeding ground kind of hybrid pairs are more common than we might think. And maybe they didn't used to be in the past, you know? And I think that's, potentially the issue is that Harlan's probably was something that was quite maybe more separated in the past, but now, you know, uh, based on maybe secondary contact again or something like that, mm-hmm. it's, it's starting to overlap pretty broadly with some of these red tailed, uh, subspecies. And hmm. I wonder why that is, this be like climate change or deforestation well, or something going I, on that's, there. Where... That's tough. I think if I had to guess, I am not remembering exactly kind of the, if there has been kind of biogeography of these subspecies done but i would guess that it was more related to um uh, the last glacial cycle um, when a lot of huh. things got separated okay. by that and this could just be a continuation of of things spreading out after the the glaciers receded it could just be something forget that on a, a geological time scale that was not that long ago <laughs> no it really wasn't and <laughs> 40 thousand years ago 40, yeah. years ago. Uh, so i i have a feeling it's more akin to, to something like that and that yeah. um you know it's it's I, I think it just shows that clearly harlan yeah harlan's looks different it it, it yeah it generated it became a very different looking thing when it was isolated probably but now it's not as isolated as as you might think um and it does seem to clearly show no strong reproductive barriers with these subspecies based on all the mixed nests found. Yeah. That's interesting stuff. So let's, uh, let's, let's leave the realm of biology and go into the realm of ice culture, bird names. Oh, it man. does feel like, the, <laughs> yeah, right. I can hear. Um, it does feel like there's been a lot more of these sorts of proposals in the last couple of years. I think that's partially due to, you know, just regular birders feeling comfortable submitting stuff to the AOS, which I think is, is a great thing on the whole. Absolutely. I don't know if the AOS agrees, but uh, <laughs> I mean, in a way, too bad, right? You know, like, yeah, right. This yeah. is this is their job. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so there's a lot of kind of interesting name uh, proposals. Probably more coming down the pike too. Um, some of the more interesting ones are uh, Ted Floyd, my colleague Ted Floyd's proposal on possessives and yeah. eliminating the apostrophe s from bird names. Uh, the one I like is Cooper's hawk becomes Cooper hawk, for instance. Stellar's jay becomes Stellar jay. Right, uh, becomes descriptive and patronymic. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I like it. That'll yeah, but that's the amount of misspelling of that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, what wh- what is sort of your your general sense on these uh, possessive? I think it's an interesting like thought experiment, but I don't know if it would necessarily work. Though I do know Rick Wright in his new Sparrow book did did use it, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yes. So I. I mean, I tend to fall on kind of Ted Floyd's side of things that, you know, if we were going back and correcting 
uh, translation of these Latin, mm-hmm. what's called genitive case, which is kind of the possessive case, to make it kind of the most correct translation, it, we would lose that apostrophe, I think, yeah. um, and the the possessive. So I, I, I agree with him there um, that I think the proper way that these common names should have been you know, set up was without the apostrophe S. And and he makes a great case that we we don't do this in so many other ways of things named after people, like the Heimlich maneuver. We don't say it's Heimlich's mm-hmm. maneuver. You know, he, he has a great list of things that show that this is standard often is not to add that apostrophe because they don't own, it's not, you know, they, it's not their bird. It's, it's just named so. after them, right? Um, and, and even within ornithology, some of the organizations like the Nuttall Ornithological Club, it's not mm, Nuttalls. Mm-hmm. And he, the Wilson he, Society. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he, he uses that, you know, he makes those same cases in here. So I, I think he makes a good case. Now, whether or not the committee, you know, the committee tends to be relatively conservative when it comes to making common name changes for things that they see as, um, you know, I, I don't know, even know how to describe it. It's not critical. It's more. It's just that it there's a it would it takes a lot to move that mountain, basically. I think. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that this is going to work. At the same time, though, I wasn't sure if Canada J would get changed. Yeah. You know, so it, true. It, the yeah. last that was I was a little surprised by that because of how conservative they can be for changing common names. But um, but the argument there is that they, they were potentially fixing a mistake, you know, or fixing yeah. something that was on. So um, in this case, it's not fixing a mistake that a past committee made. It's just a whole scale kind of change in approach in our common names. Yeah. So I I will be really curious to see what they say. I definitely have no crystal ball here. I would fall on the side of um, making the change because I think conservativeness in terms of things like this is not an excuse to, to not make a change that is what I view as being correct. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes that's just you got to do those things. And, yeah. And, and, and uh, you but, know, we'd, we'd get over it. <laughs> exactly. We, we always exactly. do. We, we get over it. That's, yeah. And that's part of my thinking is that, yes, it might seem like, oh, why did we do this? But but even two years down the line, you'll be like, oh, you know, that's just what it is now. You know, it's yeah. and, and now it'll be correct. So, yeah. um, you know, for those uh, OCD types <laughs> like me in a way, it's like, <laughs> all right, all right, that mistake's gone. We move on to the next yeah. tiny little thing that nobody really cares about, but we want it to be correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so staying on the topic of kind of fixing old mistakes what do you think about mccown's long spur so that gets into a much touchier area um, i think so yeah so i mean i don't know if uh, so so for the listeners the proposal uh for mm-hmm. the mccown's long spur is to change the name the common name not the the scientific name would still say mccowney um because changing that which is a subject for another proposal right um, <laughs> and a different species um is a much Basically, the AOS it's outside their purview. They they right. cannot. Yeah, it's they an cannot. international thing. Yeah. yeah. So, but they, they it's in their power to change the English common names how we treat it. Mm-hmm. So the issue is that the the McCown's Longspur was named after um, someone who the 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 collector of it. Um, he was a, a military officer um, and and was the one who collected the first Longspur, and so it was named mm-hmm. after him. But he went on in his career to become a figure in the Confederate States Army, a very high ranking mm-hmm. figure in the Confederate States Army. And so 
The argument here is that the AOS um, should uh, change the name because of the association with mm -hmm. what he was fighting for, basically, uh, namely slavery. And um, so, and the argument being made in the proposal is that the AOS um, has uh, uh, laudably tried to very much support their position on uh, uh, diversity throughout the field of ornithology. Um, mm -hmm. And they have, you know, they have an official diversity statement that's, that's quoted in this proposal. Um, and the idea is that, that, that the proposal is making um, is that no ornithologist or anyone should ever feel somehow kind of excluded or or made uncomfortable or whatever simply because of a name of a bird that mm -hmm. we have that we have control over right. and that That's if we are going argument. to yeah if we are going to avoid the scenarios like that just change change the common name that is something we can do um to eliminate this possibility of bringing up what this man fought for, you know? Right. So it's, it, you know, it's, but it's, this is a super touchy subject at the, yeah. the moment in the country, you know, talking about things like Confederate memorials being taken down. Like, obviously this is really touchy. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know yeah. what the committee, cause <laughs> they will, they will have, strong detractors i think no matter what their decision no matter is. what they decide yeah so this is they're in a tough place with this one yeah yeah i um i'm generally against possessive names in the first place just because you 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 have these sort of situations i mean mccown is far from the only problematic name assigned to any sort of bird i mean there's even I, even there's a ton of north american ones uh, you know the way that some of those early explorers and who have birds named after him treated native americans is appalling i mean legitimately absolutely, so absolutely. and like where where do you where do you stop once you start going down this path um Part of it is, is there are fewer Native Americans to speak for those kind of people and which is another problem i mean you're 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 opening up this 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 barn door and the, the horses are everywhere yep. and uh yeah yeah it's tough like i don't, I don't know <laughs> I, don't I, know. I mean i i agree that the that yeah. using possessive that name possessive names for birds it, i mean it, not only is it fraught with those possibilities that yes but also it's just it's not doesn't tell you anything about the bird yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I like the names that are descriptive that tell you something yeah. about the bird. Even and, if they're even if they're badly descriptive, they're still yes, yeah, even if they're very generic or something. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, ring neck duck, right? But um, right, right. <laughs> but about the in the proposal list, some some great alternatives. You know, prairie longspur. I actually really like that one. Yeah, um, that's a good one. Although you could argue other longspurs around the prairie, but like right. you know, or belted longspur is another one they have. But um, I mean, I. I generally agree with you and now this i think would be an area where it might be even tougher to get the committee to start you know that that would be a broad scale change to yeah. start saying they should just yeah. replace you know these these names but um this this one in particular i yeah i mean you, you could argue <laughs> is is much more supported like this man yeah. did some pretty he fought for some pretty horrible um, causes in terms of slavery and fought against multiple Native American tribes um, in our kind of sorted history in that area. Um, right. So I, it's I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah. To yeah. me, it's I think I think my personal opinion is that I think this falls into one of those categories of it, it's not going to hurt anybody if yeah, it's changed. That's true. Like yeah. it, honestly, it doesn't hurt anybody if it's changed and. Yeah. 
if that means down the line that potentially it has the possibility of making the field of ornithology more inclusive and avoiding these possible scenarios of uh, offensiveness or uncomfortableness or whatever, then then just do it. Just make yeah. the change. You know, it's a fair argument. Yeah, um, I hear that. Again, cons- being conservative, conservative for conservative's sake, is not an argument to not make a change, in my opinion. So, yeah. um, we'll, but who knows? I, yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> I like the proposal to change the name of um, the Lampornis hummingbirds to Mountain Gem, so we get the blue-throated Mountain Gem in uh, Avia area, which I which I like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> the, as soon as I saw this, I have to say yeah. that you know a lot of your listeners probably know Michael Redder. Um, the, the editor of, of you know Birders Guide, um, he he this is something I have birded quite a bit with him in Mexico and, and and this is something he's been wanting for such a long time. It's just call them all mountain jumps. Um, yeah, it's a great name because it's yeah it's yeah. a great name. Everything in the genus would be called the same thing, you know. Um, uh, so I I I think that this one will go through because yeah, it, it's yeah, one yeah. of those things that doesn't doesn't like why not? Yeah. There's there's you know it reduces confusion, and whether or not they remove the hyphen. Which is another part of that proposal. Ooh. We'll see. But um, <laughs> yeah, this is going to the weeds on that one. Yeah, but the but politics of hyphens. I, There's a couple of hyphen proposals. There's a quail dove hyphen proposal yes. as well. Oh man, forgot. not a quail dove, ground dove. Sorry, ground dove. Yeah, ground dove. <laughs> yeah, one's removed. One's yeah, it's, uh, hyphen. Yeah, but, <laughs> hyphens, uh, so. yeah I, I think that this one will pass, and I love that because I I like the yeah. idea of the genus having its own common name, and so if you say that common name, you know it's in that genus, and exactly. it's a great name. Mountain gem is a yeah. great name. Very evocative. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if, yeah, if people think blue-throated hummingbird, that will be, now would be blue-throated mountain gem. So yeah, cool. Well, uh, thanks Nick for shedding light on all these taxonomic concerns again. Uh, Nick is a biologist. He's a member of the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee. Uh, he's on Twitter at NLB Birder. Always always fun to talk to you about this stuff. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I love doing this. <laughs> The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization and could not do what we do without the help of members and donors. Join the ABA to help support this podcast and the many free resources we provide to the birding community. What would the birding community be without the ABA? Not as fun, I think. Joining the ABA helps keep us doing what we're doing. You can get more information at aba.org slash join and learn about our e-memberships at aba.org slash e-member. Special shout out to, and I apologize in advance if I get these names wrong. There are a couple tough ones in here. Alexia Leslie and Amelia Fisher of Oakview, California. Jason and Tina Weekly of Sacramento, California. Kelly Naraki of Antioch, Illinois. Daniel Arndt and Stacy Carnochin of Calgary, Alberta. Pamela Paponi of Davis, California. Luis Ruggieri of Newport, Rhode Island. Jason Bidgood of Denver, Colorado. All joined the ABA recently and all noted that the podcast was part of the reason why they did it. Thank you so much and welcome to the ABA. And I apologize if I butchered your name. I already talked about the survey at the top of the episode, but if you want to go a step farther, you can leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you use. Your ratings and reviews help other people find us and help us make the show better. Thank you for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He is excited about the potential white-winged scoter split, but wishes the AOS would consider that often forgotten subspecies first described by Tony Bennett and known for its crooning call the Blue Velvet Scoter. 
Technical production is from John Lowry. He's generally in favor of eliminating extra hyphens in bird names, but worries that changing ground dove to ground dove might put the species in danger from big spice manufacturers. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. Both have strong feelings about the proposed merging of the genus Melazoni into Amophila and urge the AOS to go even farther, renaming Rufus Crown Sparrow the Allison Sparrow because my Amophila is true. You can find us online at AVA.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. The increased mixing of Harlan subspecies of red-tailed hawk with the many subspecies of red-tailed hawks in the West is underappreciated. You know, maybe we should have listened more closely to Patty Lovelace's prescient warning that we'd, we'd never leave Harlan's alive. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.